Plainfield Bible Church. Thrilled to have you. There is an announcement right here that I'm going to lead with or I'll forget at the end and I probably will run out of time. Next week, we're changing things up every week. It's not in order, as you know, if you're following the book. Pastor Kevin will be leading us in chapter 10, defining moment number nine, when kids leave. So you don't want to miss that one. Uh, although I'm still waiting for that moment when the kids leave. But no, no. That's not, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, I, when you're in your moments, I, you know, we, Mindy and I have talked about this before. We kind of long for, we remember when the kids were little and the babies. And I, don't, I, I remember in the time thinking, I can't wait till they're older. Now I kind of, you know, wish that they were younger again because they're bigger than me and, you know, not as cute as they used to be. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'm joking. I, I don't want them to leave, but I think so. there's days where we do. Let me start us with prayer, and then uh, we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise your name. What a great thing it is for believers to collectively come together to worship you, to learn from you, uh, to fellowship together, to have a unity of the faith, to reinforce these relationships, to help one another, stir one another up, to love and good deeds, so that we can take this incredible gospel, this incredible message that we have, this good news to the world. That is our desire, is that we become a better representation of you, and we declare your truth with clarity, with understanding, with dignity, and without reservation. And I pray that today, as we, as we continue to, to dig into this in, incredible union and covenant that you've created of marriage, that we remember what it allows us to do. It has been stated already in this series that this gives us an, a, a, a platform to proclaim the gospel as a team, and, and what a heady thing that is. And I pray that we do that well, and that we prepare ourselves, that we look to our own homes first, and we begin to develop those healthy Christian brotherhood, sisterhood relationships so that we can then uh, represent you well in this world. I pray that we do that together collectively and then individually as we leave this place. We, we pray that you be with us, that you teach me as I teach, uh, that we continue to be humble before your word and we handle it with honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, this week, defining moment number seven, the moment you get mercy. Now when you see the picture of my wife and I, and it, it's coming, I know many of you have been waiting for this, what did he look like without the big beard? You'll see what kind of mercy my wife showed me when she said yes. You'll clearly understand that. You already understand that as you see her walking around and me walking around like, what was she thinking? My uncle, I have an uncle who's, who's passed away now, but when he first met my wife, and I, you know, she was at, we were sitting at the kitchen table, he came up to her and said, man, you get along pretty good for a blind girl. That's, you know, that's love in my family. That's what that was. So we're going to talk about mercy today without question. This is something that we all understand as believers, don't we? If we're believers, we understand this. And yet we're going to see that we are to extend this ourselves and our relationships primarily with our spouse. So as I get this going here, hopefully it'll work for me. I'm hitting it. Let me turn it on and off and see. We'll give you the outline for today as it comes up or when it comes up. The outline is going to be just a basic introduction. And then a quick note I want to spend just a little bit of time with. And I'm going to discipline myself to be very quick with it, but I think it's an important thing to start with. You'll see what I mean when we get there. Some statistics, you know me in statistics. 
You know me and the numbers. I think it's interesting to look at these numbers. We'll just talk about where trouble starts in relationships. And I was kind of surprised by the numbers, personally. I expected to see something else. And it was shocking to me a little bit where trouble usually begins and sets root or puts its root down, roots down in our relationships in the home. And then kind of breaking down how the book looks at. Now, you'll notice, those of you who have read through the book and the chapter, you're going to see me bouncing around. I don't keep the same order as the author. I jump around where I think it would be good for just my own transitionary uh, teaching method. But uh, you'll see that these are some of the topics that he brought up. And I've added a few here and there. And um, as we get through these, I think it's important to note that so much of the Scripture we're going to look at today is more relational between believer and believer. It's not specifically to marriages. However, however, I think as I've prayed just now and, and it has been stated so many times, we're probably never going to find a better example of how believers are to treat one another than in our relationship with our spouse. This is the most intimate. This is the most closely knit and in, intertwined and one spirit type relationship that we're going to find. Now, we find that in friendships. We know that Jonathan and David experienced that, that they, they were knit at the soul, so to speak. But with our, with our wife and our husband, we're going to find this if we're believers, the two of us are believers, both loving the same Savior as we've talked about before. As we get closer to him, we get closer to one another. There should be, there should be a, an outflowing of mercy, grace, love, compassion, the things that we would show all believers that we are to, we're going to use many of these and specifically look at how we handle that in our relationship in our home first, and you'll see how that works through. So we'll look at some of these things, and you can see the list of things I'll try to cover today where mercy finds its, its home in our relationships. So let's jump in here, and uh, I'm still having trouble with the clicker. There we go. Let's start with Mark chapter 10. Feel free to turn there. That the context is, uh, I'll kind of bring this up. Feel free to turn to these passages. I'll try to go slow enough that you can do that. I'll bring most of the passages up as, as I often do. But as you turn to Mark 10, feel free to do that. This, the context here is divorce. I'm not necessarily talking about divorce, but that's what Jesus is referencing when they were questioning him. The Pharisees are questioning him about the concept of divorce. The reason I want to bring this up is just to establish, again, reestablish. This verse has been used already in our series, but I just want to reestablish how important marriage is to the Lord, how precious it is to him. Uh, He considers it sacred, as I put here in the topic, but I think it's good to to reread this again. Remember, Jesus is referencing Genesis 2.24 when he is quoting this. This is a a union like none other on earth. And those of you who have been married for so many years, my wife and I are coming up on 25 years. And um, some would say that's long. I, I, it happened in a flash. And, and I would guess that my parents were married for 62. They said it happened in a flash. And I, I've talked to some of you, and you say the same thing. What a, an incredible thing that, we've given, that God has given us. And it is a gift. But here's what he says about it. I know you know the passage, but I think it sets us up well. But from the beginning of creation, I just love that. From the jump, God knew this was necessary. He saw that it was good. God made them male and female. This indicates to us a little bit here that there weren't a whole bunch. He made one for another. It it was the two of them. It wasn't Adam, Eve, Linda, Janice. It was Adam and Eve. There was a special union here. It was two becoming one. Beautiful thing. 
Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Hold fast. We're going to see later on one flesh holding fast, glued together, solid, together as a team. We are now one. It's, it's supernatural. There's something to this. They, they become one. And the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two but one. He doubles down on it. No longer two but one. One flesh, glued together, holding fast. It's not like other relationships. It's special. So again, I want to set the stage here because what we're talking about is what are we doing to kind of cultivate this special relationship that God has given us as a gift that he created. The world has distorted the terms, right? They've, they've changed the, the rules. Well, we haven't. We haven't. We, we have the corner on truth. We, we, we have the corner on what's eternal. Yesterday we had our uh, I'm reluctant to tell you this because you might judge me for this, but please, I'm a sinner just like you. You know, yesterday we had our graduation, and uh, you know all the staff has to be there, and you know, the kids come up, they say a nice little thing about them, and then oftentimes they say, and their favorite memory of Traders Point Christian School is, and one of these young seniors who I taught as a freshman said, my favorite memory is a quote by Mr. Johnson. So as soon as you hear that, you're like, oh boy. I've said a lot of things, you know. Who knows? And, you know, what day was that? And what was I talking about? But speaking of truth, here was the quote. I said, and I don't remember saying this, but I believe I said it. So just full confession here. There are three things that will tell you the truth about yourself. God's word, right off the bat. Little kids and yoga pants. This was said in front of everybody. Now, I don't believe I said that exactly like that, but it's a possibility I said that because I probably said, so pull your shirt down or something to that effect right after that. I don't know. Please don't judge me. I probably heard it from somebody else. I didn't coin it. Point is we hold the truth. We hold the truth. Yoga pants don't. We do. We hold the truth because God's word is true and this is all put together. And of course, at the end of this verse, what God's joined together, let man not separate. This is God's covenant. This is something God united. A spiritual, undivided union. Beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. And here's what uh, um, David Jeremiah says about this. If it comes up here, I'll keep hitting the button. There it is. Here's what it says. Speaking of this, and he's coming off of talking about Genesis 2.18. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper. He's making reference to this. He says this about this passage. You and I are wired for a love for love and marriage it's simply in our dna why is it that members of the human race in all countries all eras and in all situations reach a certain age and begin to seek a mate it's because god made us that way he did he made us this way from the beginning it's not good for man to be alone now this is not a commentary on whether or not we know what the apostle paul said it's a gift to be single if you have that gift you have more of a focus you don't have the distractions of life and the responsibilities that when you're married you do to focus on the ministry. But wow, this is something God made us to be like from the very beginning. You see the special element that we have from this. Um, and think about this. As, as we walk with Christ, we know what he says in John 10. You know, it's the thief that comes to destroy. But when we have salvation in Christ, it's salvation for the future. There's incredible hope. We have incredible uh, thoughts and, and concepts of what the future holds 
But it's life more abundantly now, too, and I think marriage is, is included in that because it's a God-given, divine-inspired union. Now, here comes the picture, if it comes up. There we go. Feast your eyes there. So you see the mercy that I was shown. Young, a young Marshall Johnson there, very, very young without the beard. But there it is. Mindy looks the same, if you've noticed. I know that's what you were about to say. I do not, clearly. I've got pictures like this, although some earlier than this on my, ta- on my desk, and the kids are always asking, who is that that is posed with your wife? And they're dead serious. Like, Why do you have a picture of some other guy on your desk? I said, no, that's me. That's me. All right, so there's, a, there's the picture, and we definitely still do. Moving on here. Clicker's given us some hesitation. Quote from MacArthur. Many of you saw MacArthur this week with, with myself and others. Uh, 4,000, 5,000 people there in Cincinnati. It was a really incredible experience. Justin and I were just talking about this. We had the same story. We were st- sitting close enough to see MacArthur go up the stage and come down the stage. And I thought, he's not going to make it up the stage. He's 83 years old. He's barely making it. He's kind of holding the thing as he goes on. But as Justin, I'll just steal Justin's line here, but when he locked in and he did this, it's like a switch was flipped and the Holy Spirit took over and he was on point and still teaching and spitting fire from the pulpit like Johnny Mac always does. I was impressed. But what a cool experience, by the way, to be there with my sons. I know Justin and others felt the same way. Really cool thing. But here's what he says about, about marriage and this incredible, beautiful thing that God's created. It's time for Christians to reiterate the divine pattern. Our marriages and family should demonstrate a way of living that is rewarding, meaningful, and fulfilling. How do you represent your wife? How do you represent your husband to other people? Do you act like it's a burden? Do you use that terms, terms like ball and chain? Or is it fulfilling, meaningful, rewarding? How do you view her? How does she view you to other people? That divine pattern should be evident to the world as it looks at Christian marriages and families. We are the ones who hold the truth. Do we represent that well? And as we talk about mercy today, people are going to notice if you don't extend mercy and grace to your spouse because that's going to come out in your speech, as we'll see today. Very important point. I've used this quote before, although I don't know if I've used it here, but this is such an important thing to consider. By the way, you're going to see this quote come up here in just a minute. He follows this up at the end with another line. It's, a, it's discouraging, but yet challenging for us. And I'll bring this quote up here again in a moment. So as we go forward and we look at this, if I can get the clicker to go here, here's our first point. Mercy embraces love, but does not tolerate evil. I want to spend just a moment on this. This is just the very quick thing I want to talk about. Here is a quote from the book. It's kind of out of order. Hopefully it'll come up for you, and I'm going to read it out loud if it doesn't. But here's what it says, and this is something I want to be sensitive to. Uh, I know that I have a problem when I teach at times to be a little too bold, a little too strong, a little too insensitive. So I don't want to be that way because I know some of you have gone through it in your marriages, and you've experienced what I'm about to read. This comes from page 121 for those of you who are are following along in the book. Because mercy embraces love, it refuses to submit to ongoing evil. Nowhere is this more clearly seen than in causes or cases of abuse. If you're married to someone who's abusing you physically or sexually, this is a critically important to remember. The highest form of love is not quiet submission to abusive behavior, but boldly exposing the evil for what it is. And we've got biblical precedent for this that we're going to look at here in just a moment. 
As incredibly frightening as it may be to go public and to get help, this may be the only way to truly awaken the person imprisoned in abuse. Turn to Matthew 18 with me very quickly. We're going to be in Matthew 18 twice, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. This is really not the, the focus, but I don't want to skip it either. And my wife and I were talking about this, and she said, you know, really ought to hit this first. I had it at the end, and she said, you know yourself. You may not get to that, so don't do that. And once again, my wife helping me out. But anyway, Matthew 18, we're going to hit this twice. 15 through 17 talks about sin. We know that this is coming off of the parable of the lost sheep. That there are so many lost out there that Christ cares about the lost. Remember now, the context of Matthew 18 is to restore a brother or sister in Christ. This could be your spouse. Matthew 18 is not referencing marriage specifically. But as I mentioned at the beginning, what better example we have to honoring and loving our brothers and sisters in Christ than your spouse. That's the one that you're waking up next to every day. That's the one we should be doing and, and exercising this uh, the best and in, in the most efficient way. Anyway, that's what this is coming off of, and this is the idea that restoration is our goal. Here's what we have. Verse 15, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault. You need to directly deal with this. And I'm sure many of you who have felt this, experienced this, I'm sure you've done that. I'm sure they know you don't like it. I'm sure they, that, that you have expressed to them that they've been hurting you, but that's your first move. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother, your husband. In some cases, maybe your wife back, your partner back. And hopefully that's the case. Don't let it continue on. Deal with it. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you. This is the hard part, getting other people involved. But that's, that's exa- exactly the prescription God gives us. Spiritually speaking, there are some times that we need the church with us. We need other brothers and sisters to help us. We were not made on an island. We weren't made to operate on an island. You and I are, are creatures of fellowship. It's just the way it is. But if he doesn't listen, take two or, uh, one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And I'll just speak for the other elders. We want you to tell us. We want, you, we want to help you. We want to love you. And if that is the case, if that's what's going on, then... Um, that isn't right, and we need to help make it right. So please, please don't keep it quiet. I, I, this is when I talk about mercy today. And by the way, before I go on from this, some of you have experienced this. True repentance has been, has been expressed. True sorrow and change has been observed. And mercy's been extended. So I know that that's true here. And that is the goal. Sometimes I also know that's not the case. I understand that that's not the case. So I want to be sensitive to that. As I teach mercy, some of you are thinking, yeah, but I, you don't understand my situation. I may not, I ne- but the Lord does. And he knows the prescription that works, and this prescription will work. And just to kind of connect the dots here, this is not out of context because it is talking about marriage, but I do want to look at this from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And again, I don't want to spend too much time on this. There is a prescription in the Bible also for taking a time or separation away from your husband or your wife. This has to do with prayer. This has to do with getting closer to the Lord. But I think it fits. I do think it fits. Now remember, 1 Corinthians 7 is talking about your body's not your own, the husband and the wife. Um, So that's the idea here. It's the intimate relationship, the physical relationship. But there are times 
that God says there may be a time to separate from that for a bit. And, and in a case of abuse, I would say you need to get yourself out of that situation. I'm not talking divorce here. Um, there, are, there are things that happen, but there is a time to be separated. And so that's what we see here. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That could be read in a few different ways. Certainly, infidelity and adultery is, is at play here. But this is, and of course, your thought life could be at play. But I think this could extend to our situation that we're talking about here. I don't want to spend too much time on that. I just wanted to be sensitive to it. And I think this is important to look at. So please, please understand where I'm coming from on this. I understand every situation isn't the same. Okay, let's move on from that. I've covered that. Some interesting statistics that, we've, that we kind of have to talk about. And it's, it's important to look at what, what causes things to fall apart in relationships, in marriages specifically. And unfortunately, as we're going to see from a few quotes, in Christian marriages, the percentages are almost identical to the world, which is, is a sad state. But here are some of the statistics. The first one I'm going to show you comes from the National Library of Medicine. And it's a uh, research that they did. Um, it's been a six years ago now. And these are, as it comes up here, reasons people are, res- uh, and the, the responses they gave for why they decided to, to end their relationship. Quote from MacArthur really quick. Oop, there it is. There, that's what I want. I had the, thought I had the quote after, but they may have had it first. If I go back to the quote, that's fine. If you guys are running that up here because mine's not working. Here's this quote we had earlier. Here's the addition at the end. So you see that, I'm just going to read the very end of it. That divine pattern should be evident to the world as it looks at Christian marriages and families. Here's the, the next line he has in this book. Unfortunately, the world's problem of divorce has also become the problem of the church. All right, you guys can advance that to the next slide. Here's the statistics that we see. These are reasons people gave for why their relationship isn't working. It's on, but it's just not working. Appreciate it. Why it's not happening. Now, we're going to see two slides that are kind of representing the same data. And here's, and I know that's tough to see, I know. But if you look at this, I expected to see infidelity at the top of the list. Maybe that's what instinctively you thought. But it's not. Notice one in three. So one in three gives us a little insight that our next slide will show us. Lack of commitment. You're not going to dig in and fix the relationship. Deal with that other sinner that you're laying next to. Because you're a sinner too. You're not committed to it because you don't think that it's a divine ordered covenant. You don't think it's something God created. I don't know what it is. I'm not sure. And then uh, it, the, the second thing is um, conflict and conflict resolution. That was the third thing. Excuse me. Those two things combined is this incomp- incompatibility and commitment issues that makes up nearly 50%, 44%. 45% of why relationships don't work is because we can't deal with conflict. We can't deal with disagreements. We can't deal with the flawed nature of our partner. And I, I think that is because we have fallen into the same trap that the world does. And I, I, when I say we, I'm talking about the church collectively because the numbers are the same. You've probably heard this, and it's, it's a very hard number to fall on. You've, some of you have heard 50%, now they're saying it's not that high, but it's certainly somewhere between 40 and 50% is the divorce rate. It just depends on how you calculate that raw data versus uh, when they were married, how long they've been married, if it's first-time marriages, all of these things that you can calculate. But the, the divorce rate's very high, and our numbers are the same. Ours as the believers are the same, almost exa- exactly, and the reasons are about the same. But that's a shame, because we have the truth, Right? 
We hold the truth and we have instruction so we know what it's supposed to be. Go ahead and advance it to that next slide for me as we go through here. Here's what Mark 10 says again. Remember, I'm just going to hit this again. We've two become one flesh. This is God ordained. They're no longer two but one. Okay, You're not separate. And here's the reason I think I brought this back up. The reason that we fall into this conflict number, the 44%, can't resolve, can't get along, we're not committed, is because we kind of still think we're one all by ourselves, right? That, that, that person next to you, the sinner next to you, you think, no, they're not on my team. They're not me. They're not us. Mindy and I were just talking about my brother-in-law passing away, as, of course, as you can imagine, we've talked about quite a bit. It's like a piece of you we felt like our sister-in-law is losing. I felt that way when my mother uh, lost my father. There's a piece of her that's gone. And that's true. It's absolutely true. But when we, on this side of eternity, begin to think, no, it's just me. I'm on my own. They don't really have my best interest. They don't care. We're, we're playing an individual game when that's not the way it's supposed to be played. Go ahead and go on to the next, the next quote. I've quoted a lot of guys here. I'm, I'm quoting myself. You see my nice picture up here? Some of you may remember this picture from, <clears throat> from my book when I did a, 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 a Sunday school on humility. Humility and how I achieved it. That's the picture I put, the fake, <laughs> fake picture. Anyway, I, I, I wrote a paper a couple years ago in a seminary class. And uh, it was on human sexuality and the family relationship and, and Christian thought. And this is what I said. Anyway, it works. I just didn't want to mess up my own words. Speaking of the affection God has, speaking of these things we've been discussing, his love for the marriage institute, this strong affection that God has towards the marriage covenant is certainly rooted in the comparison that Christ makes between human marriage and the eternal relationship he has with his church. There's no doubt. He uses that comparison on purpose. Christ refers to the collective body of believers as his bride, as you know. Jesus used wedding imagery in multiple parables. Speaking of the kingdom, most of those parables are about the kingdom and us involved in the kingdom. And of course, as I mentioned, he talks about the future banquet of celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we are looking forward to. That moment we are feasting together in fellowship in eternity, uh, just as before we return with Christ. Incredible time that we would be thinking of this reunion of the saints. Christian marriages should therefore be representative of the covenant between Christ and his church. They should be a fulfilling, loving, faithful relationship It creates an unmatched platform for the gospel. I believe that. I wrote that. I believe it's true. Go ahead and advance to the next one. But we sometimes struggle to do this because of this very thing. We're too prideful. We're too prideful. We forget where we came from. And I think that this is easy, easy for us to do. I don't know about you, but pride is a sin that I never seem to be able to whip. It's just one of those that keeps creeping in. And to be truthful, I think every sin we struggle with is cord, is started, has its, has its infancy in pride, doesn't it? It's what I want rather than what God wants. My will versus his will. Every single sin we have. It's because I think this is better and I think I'm better at understanding my situation than God. And of course, on the surface we know that's not true. In the heart of hearts we know it's not true, but yet it still comes out. Romans 7 is true for every one of you. And it's true for me. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing them. That's pride. That's what we see here. Quote from the book, and I know this one's tough. This one's small. I I see that. I clipped these from the book itself on the digital version of the book. thought it would be easier, but it's a little tougher to read now that I see that. 
But this came from page 115. You see I'm bouncing around. This is a biographer of Jonathan Edwards, and he, she's making comments about their marriage as it went along. So this is Jonathan and Sarah Edwards and a commentary on their marriage. Here's what it says. Enough has been said about the beauty of love in the middle of, year, of years of life. But such a time in marriage, the trying habits of one's partner have either been accepted or no longer noticed. Notice that. The trying habits of one's partner. Not sin, just things that make them unique. How do you deal with those? Have become so much, uh, it says this, have either been accepted or no longer noticed, while the precious aspects of the other have become so much a part of the consciousness that they are like leaf prints stamped in stone. It's beautiful writing here. Memories, both of happy times and sorrow, endured together are glued into the marriage, that glue term again, that we hear that really is a representation of the Greek that Jesus used. The ties between the two people are further fixed by the many years of jokes shared and common body of experiences. I know you feel that, those of you who've been married a long time. At this stage in a relationship, to come back to the comfort, comforting presence of the other after being out among people, to uh, other people, I think is what it's referencing, uh, being out among people is to be rested and at home. All of this comes only after there has been a fro- profound tie of love. The ups and the downs, this is what makes a marriage solid because you have endured, you have consistently walked with them, you have defied the statistics, and you don't use the excuses. You are committed because you know it's divine, and the ups and the downs have brought you even closer together. This is the ideal, of course. And this is what the book goes on to say. One will not find a better description of mercy's impact on a marriage. Mercy sees the other's trying habits, but grows to accept or forget them. Mercy sees the sorrows endured as glue that bonds. Jokes are swapped and experiences treasured. Mercy makes returning to each other a homecoming. Yeah, that's that's exactly how you feel in a strong marriage. And then, I love this, it says, But many of you are thinking, that's great, Dave. When you're a Puritan like Jonathan Edwards, his brain was bigger than my Buick, and my wife was probably dropped, and his wife was probably dropped from Angel's Academy. Yeah, you know, I guess you can start to think that way. You know, that's nice, that's ideal, and it is. That's not how it always works, and I agree. It doesn't always work that way. That is the way it's supposed to be. It's good to see the ideal, but we know that there's struggles, that there are things that are difficult in our marriages, and that's where Scripture comes into play that really helps us here. Second Corinthians chapter five. I'm going to pick up my pace here a little bit. Speaking of, you know, we consider this, verse 17, that leads us into this contextually. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's a different person, right? Both you and your wife, new, per- new people. You're not the same as you used to be, which means you don't act the way that you used to be. Don't go back into that. That's verse 18. You're passed from <clears throat> old to new. You're a new creation. The new thing has come. Okay, and then verse 18 says, all that, that salvation, that, re, that, that renewing of who you are, that, that redemption, this is all from God who through Christ recon, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, this is reconciliation of the sinner to God. We're going to get to this very famous passage of the great exchange in verse 21. It's the reconciliation that we were once enemies. We were all enemies of God. And he reconciled us to himself. But this needs to extend to our relationships too. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting. That's not reckoning their sin, their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Aha. So we have it now. 
We know what it means to be redeemed. We understand the power of the gospel. We know by grace through faith in Christ saved us. And we have this message to deliver from the context of marriage. We do this together as a team. The platform has been established, so we got to do it first in and amongst us. There has to be this. Remember what you were saved from. We are now ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Again, think team. You're together in this. You're both collectively. Your aim is to please the Lord and to bring the gospel to the world around you. Neighbors, co-workers, family, those you encounter as a team. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Of course, salvation comes from him. Uh, the, the necessity of salvation in the individual person, individual sinner. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. This is the great exchange so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Don't forget where you started, where you came from. And we know this passage. I'm not going to spend much time on this because we come back to Ephesians 2 so often. But I think it's important, important to look at verse 4. We know what we were. Dead in our trespasses, verses 1 through 3. We were following the prince and the power of the air. All of us were. I don't care when you got saved. You could have been five years old. I know you weren't a bank robber then, but you were following the pattern of this world when you were four. If Jesus saved you at five, but most of you, many of you came to know the Lord, and I shouldn't say most, a lot of you came to know the Lord much later in life. Boy, you know one through three. That was you, without doubt. Dead. Dead men can't do anything. Look at verse four, though. Beautiful. But God being rich in what? Mercy. Grace unmerited favor, grace giving you what you don't deserve, mercy not giving you what you do deserve, so intertwined because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is what happened to you. Now you think about the trespasses that you've made comparing your quote-unquote righteousness to God's. That's a vast gap, isn't it? Beyond measure, isn't it? And then you begin looking at your spouse and saying, yeah, but she's so bad. Oh, really? He's so terrible. You don't remember what you were, do you? And the Father of, of heaven, the God of the universe, the King of kings, saw fit to overlook yours. Boy, that should give us a different perspective. Here's what Chuck Swindoll says about this. Some of you have been Christians so long, you've forgotten what you were like before Christ. I have that tendency. I've been a Christian for over 40 years. Could that explain why you're still so proud? Yes, Chuck, that is explaining why I'm so proud. Maybe that's why the Lord has to spend so much time getting our attention. Yeah, I agree. You've, gotten how, you've, you've forgotten how undeserving you are of his grace. True words. You've forgotten his mercy. Try hard not to forget what life was like before Christ, and you'll be a frequent visitor at the gate of mercy. And then I added this to Chuck's quote, and more willing to dispense it. I think you'll be more willing to dispense it. He didn't say that, but I think he meant it. Okay, More willing to dispense mercy, to give it out. Here's what it says from the book. First, when I'm sinned against, mercy makes reconciliation my goal, as we've seen. The incredible mercy I've received at the cross becomes the starting point for how I will respond to my spouse's sin against me. The gospel tamps down my outrage and sense of injustice. It reminds me daily that I've received an inexhaustible mercy so I must pass this mercy along inexhaustibly. Great reminder if we remember what we came from. Ephesians 4, here's, what, here's our call. Here's what we're supposed to be. Here's our attitude as a believer. And remember, context with verse 29 and follow. We're not letting in corrupt talk come out of our mouth. 
This I usually use with teenagers, <laughs> as you can imagine, but I think that has to do with you and me too and how we talk to our wives, how we talk to our husbands. Corrupt talk is talk that hurts, destroys, and kills. Be careful what you say and how you say it on such trivial matters. But as we go through this, in verse 30, we're grieving the Holy Spirit when we do that. Context. Verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice, kind to one another. This is outside marriage, but man, it has to be here. It's got to be in marriage. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Never forget what you were forgiven from and of, and you'll extend that to your spouse. And this leads us into this next section, keeping a record of wrong. Boy, do we do this. Boy, do we do this. This is easy to do. That back pocket gets pretty full of stuff that my spouse said or did. Well, she left the keys here. Well, she didn't turn that light off there. I mean, all this pathetic stuff that we can begin to do, and yet we know what God's done. Let's see what God's done. David here in Psalm 103, we don't know the author in Psalm 130. I think very possibly could be David again, but let's look at what he says about God and how he handles our wrongs, okay? Very interesting, dealing with God's goodness and love in Psalm 103. Here's how God shows his love in part. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Talking to believers here, just believers, those who are redeemed, looking ahead in time. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove my transgressions from us. He doesn't look at us according to our sins. Do you look at your spouse that way? You don't want him to look at you that way. Do you? Psalm 130, here's what it says. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities. Oh boy. If you were to do that, who could stand? Don't forget where you came from. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Remember, we're to forgive as we've been forgiven. This is a quote from the book again, page 119. You see I'm jumping around. If this is how God responds to sin, we should respond that way too. When your spouse sins against you and asks for forgiveness, it's an opportunity to declare not only your forgiveness, but also God's. It's an opportunity to say, God does not see you through the, your sins and mistakes, and I won't either. God does not keep a record of wrongs, and I won't either. This is more than sprinkled simple kindness. It's costly mercy. It may cost you something. And what do we see in the New Testament? I love the NASB version of this. The NASB version of this, and I oftentimes use ESV and NASB intertwined, but I some of you may have an ESV, and I'm going to talk about what that says differently, similar. But these verses discuss this, um, this ministry that we have. This ministry we have an opportunity to have. This love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 is so often used in, in marriage ceremonies. So often. But it's, it's the ministry of love that believers have to have. Remember, before this, it's if you, if you speak and teach in, in tongues of angels and you don't have love, it's, it's just clanging cymbals, right? If you're giving your life, but there's no love, it's worthless. Love's the key to all of this. Well, it defines what love is. Look at this. Love is patient. Love's kind. It's not jealous. You've heard this. Doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. Look at that pride coming in here. Does not act unbecomingly and does not seek its own. It's not provoked. And here's how the NASB says it. Does not take into account wrong suffered. Doesn't keep remembering it. Doesn't keep a record of wrong. This, in the ESV, is resentful. You resent. 
what they've done, whatever that is. And remember, so pathetic compared to what you've done to the Lord and been forgiven of. It doesn't do that. It doesn't consider that. It doesn't keep remembering that. Does not rejoice in unrighteous, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I don't have to tell you who have been married a long time, it takes endurance to do it God's way, doesn't it? And I respect you for it. I look, by the way, those of you who have been married more than 25 years, keep going because I'm looking to you. I'm watching you. And, and you're, you're our mentors to us that have been only, I love, who, who did it? Pastor, I think you did it. You put us in sections a couple weeks ago. And I, I did. I kept looking over at you guys. I did, honestly, watching your reactions to what he was saying. I did that. Maybe some of the rest of you did too. It, that's inspiring. That's stirring me up to love and good deeds. That's happening. It, it's, it's a really cool thing. And, and uh, for those of us who've lost our parents, who had great relationships, I don't have that to model anymore. I, don't, I, I love to do it while they were still here. We rely on you. Just a challenge, because this is, a, this is a cool thing. Here's what MacArthur has to say about this as I bring this forward. And I pulled this from a sermon, not a book. Here's what he says. To put it simply, love forgives everything done against it. The loving person doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And I'll tell you, you know what destroys marriages is unforgiveness. And he repeats it, unforgiveness. If you continually forgive one another all the time, there's no record of wrong kept. There's no accumulation of a wall. Every time someone will not forgive, another brick goes into the wall that begins to, to wall the two people, and I think he means separating each other, right? Nothing is more important in your marriage than forgiveness. Instant, spontaneous, complete forgiveness that it's never brought up again. And you cannot accumulate the devastating attitudes of bitterness and retaliation and revenge that destroys a relationship. Remember the statistics. Weren't committed weren't committed, weren't, weren't, weren't in for the long haul, the endurance. That's what we see from the book. The call to forgive doesn't depend on your spouse or anyone for that matter initiating a confession. It doesn't depend on them asking for it. My wife and I just talked about this. Um, you know, she said something to the effect that's just showing spiritual maturity. I'm going to forgive them. They don't even know they've wronged me, but they're never going to say anything. My job is to just forgive. I said, you're right, I'm on, I, I didn't tell her, but I'm going to mention that you just said that. That's true. People don't have to know, and they don't even have to ask for forgiveness for you to forgive. You don't need to hold it against them. She wasn't talking about me, by the way, so I hope not. I anyway, Mark 11 makes this clear. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses, this will mess up your prayers if you hold on to this, especially with your spouse. And men, we have a specific verse for that, but we won't get to it today. The idea that I won't have a posture of forgiveness until someone repents is typically just a spiritualized way of saying, pay for your sins. You pay for that first, then I'll forgive you. And we're going to end today with Matthew 18 again. So go to Matthew 18, 21 through 35. I don't have this up, so bring it up in your Bibles. How often should we forgive? Let's see. Is there a mathematical number we can come up with? I think Peter thinks so. Before you go judging Peter, I find myself being a lot like him a lot, at least with the bad stuff. Sometimes we don't want to quantify it so I can satisfy my own conscience. And God's not going to let him do this. As you go there, Matthew 18, we've already looked at. Okay, let's just say you've done the Matthew 18 principle and they have asked for, they have asked for forgiveness and they've truly repented. Okay, now what? How is your, now this is about your heart. This is about the believer's heart. The setup here is 
we know, rabbinically speaking, the rabbis would say three times you forgive somebody because God forgave Israel's enemies three times in Amos. We're going to go with that. That's the number Peter had in his head, three. So look what he does, verse 21. Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive? As many as seven times? He's up in the ante. He's trying to impress his Savior here. I know what you're thinking, three, I said seven. Is that enough? And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven, but 70 times seven. He's not saying 490, he's saying infinity. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Most commentaries would say this is billions of dollars. This is the highest uh, form of money they would have had then. And this is 10,000 of them. It's a lot. Billions of dollars. This is you and your sin, is what you're trying to get at here. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. Out of pity, mercy, grace, Ephesians 2, 4, for him. And the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Oh boy, that happened to you if you're in Christ. Amazing. But when that came, when, the, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and that's, by the way, not much, comparatively, one day's work, seized him, began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Hopefully, that's not your tone with your wife or your husband. But I'll bet you if you're confessing, sometimes it is. Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, and by the way, this could be a little Matthew 18 earlier, believers coming around, saw this had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the, the debt that, because you pleaded with me that you should now have mercy on your fellow servants as I've had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you who do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, let me just break this down a second. I don't think we can look at this and say he's talking to unbelievers here. This is not talking about losing salvation. We don't preach that here because it's not biblical. You can't lose it. He's not talking about sending you to hell here. But if you don't think the heavenly father disciplines those and chastens those he loves, you're fooling yourself. He does. The believer is going to be disciplined. There's going to be hardship that comes from above if you decide to live your life without mercy and grace, especially, I think, for your spouse. Remember, your ambassadors for the king is a team. You're proclaiming the truth, the grace, the mercy, the love that Christ bestowed on you to the world. And if you're not doing that in your own home, I don't think God's going to let you have that platform for much longer to proclaim the gospel. He's going to have other servants do that. He's called a servant here. Discipline's coming your way. And we see this in, in the way Paul writes as well when there are believers who are struggling. He even uses the terms giving him over to Satan to destroy the flesh. There is judgment coming. There's difficulties coming. There is hardships coming for those who refuse to extend the mercies that were extended to them. And I think in particular in their marriage. And I think that if we look at that, this is the necessary way to look at all things. And let me end with this verse here. And we'll skip the quote. This is so important. This is the way we need to look at 
Rather than that, here's what we ought to do. And this isn't a marriage passage, but it gives us an idea. And we'll end with this because I'm out of time. Paul says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Your spouse could fall into any one of those categories. They could need encouragement. They could be, maybe they're, maybe they're not following the Lord. Maybe they're not doing what they're supposed to be. Maybe they're, maybe they're weak. Maybe they're struggling. Maybe they are sinning. Your job is to encourage them. Of course, show mercy and grace. Lift them up. See that no one repays evil for evil. You may have been hurt. That may be true. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone, especially in your household. As we think of these things and we consider what has been done for us, mercy's got to be extended in the house. It's got to be done. It has to be done. And I think it helps us to preach the gospel to ourselves, doesn't it? Remind ourselves of the gospel because it's a beautiful thing. It changed our life. Our life should be marketably different than the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this uh, instruction that you've given us on mercy and grace and the reminder that it's, uh, it's our job. It's our job to do the same. It's not seven times. It's continually. It's all the time. Our spouse is a gift. I pray that we never forget that. That it's something that you've designed, that you knew about, that you meant for us, that it was good to do this, that we would have mates, that you built us in our DNA to desire this. I pray that we make the very most of it and uh, love our spouse, love our husband, love our wives the way you loved us. This incredible comparison that you make between your church and yourself, your son and his church, that's a very important thing to consider that we have a very similar type relationship that is supposed to be representing that ultimate relationship. I pray we never forget it. And we take this to the world as we learn this here in church today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.